Good morning, good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I am so excited to be here with you this morning. This is our second Tuesday of Black History Month, and there has been so much going on in this world, in the city, and uh, probably in your homes as well. We're still battling this pandemic, and yet, we are beginning to get used to this lifestyle and figuring out the best way to balance out living our lives under so many different restrictions. And I want you to think about that when you think about people of color, when you think about immigrants, when you think about um, those people with a different sexual orientation than the traditional male and female. I want you to think about people who are navigating the world with all of the restrictions that you have and then add these other layers. And maybe that's the best way I can see for a man to understand what it's like to navigate the world as a woman is to have all the problems that you have in addition to the issues that are involved with being a woman in the world. Sometimes that vulnerability and, and those prejudices, the thoughts that people have just looking at the physical being of female. Now add being a woman of color to that. And you begin to see layer after layer of pressure, stress, more to navigate, making less money based on the prejudices of other people. Each person is trying to navigate the world the best way they can. And there is no rule book except, I guess, depending on if you have a religious rule book or philosophy of some kind. In the end, what it comes down to is this idea of learning more about our commonalities or having the time to look into our differences of history or the way history has treated certain people and gaining knowledge from that. And perhaps empathy, I didn't say sympathy, empathy, insight, and I think in the end, becoming fuller people. I say all this because as we enter into this week of black history um, that began February 1st, we're entering it with bomb threats against historically black colleges and universities bomb threats against these schools, Alcorn State, Arkansas Baptist College, Coppin State, Edward Waters University, Fort Valley State University, Harris Stowe, Howard University in Washington, D.C., Jackson State University in Mississippi, Kentucky State University, Mississippi Valley State, Morgan State in Baltimore, Philander Smith in Little Rock, Arkansas, Russ College, Spelman College in Atlanta, Tougaloo College in Alabama, University of the District of Columbia and Xavier University. We look at this in Xavier in Louisiana. We, we look at this and we see it's across the country. Historically, black colleges and universities are those educational institutions that have their rooting in the post-enslavement period of this country where we had a college like Spelman College that has as its mission the education of black women. That started, think about this, after slavery ended. Howard University began in the 1870s, Spelman College in the, the 1880s. These colleges and some of them, like, like Wilberforce, started even before slavery ended. We need to understand these colleges are rooted in a time period 
when people of African descent, for the most part, there were some like Oberlin, where they did have uh, people of African descent at attending those colleges in the early time period um, in the 1850s and 60s. But for the most part, many of these colleges and universities have their roots in the 1870s up to the 1890s. And that was the post-slavery movement during the time period of Reconstruction. And Reconstruction is what we're calling, and historically, that time period after the Civil War, when the South had been devastated by that war, and to reconstruct it, to go in and try to rebuild it. But it was also during the time period in which there were federal troops in the South there to protect the rights of the newly freed Africans. And then those troops were abruptly removed in 1877 as part of a peace negotiation between whites in which they politically wanted to take the White House, but the, it was tied. And so the determination was that we will go ahead and take the troops out of the South and give the White House to a particular president. Now, when we look back at this, we see that once again, for expediency's sake, it was the African-Americans who were set to the wolves of those furious white people in the South who were still angered by the loss of the Civil War and took that anger out on African-Americans who were slaughtered without prosecution of those people who were the killers in those cases, assaulted, their voting rights undermined. And then we have, of course, the Supreme Court playing its role with Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, in which then this country became by law segregated by race in separate but equal, which was never equal. This is what our foundation was, and it is out of that that Dr. Carter G. Woodson gains his degree in history from Harvard, only the second black man to get a PhD from Harvard at that time, in 1912 to go on and create Negro History Week in 1926 that then expands into Black History Month, and that's where we are today. And those same HBCUs, those historically black colleges and universities under bomb threat from young people, young people, of course, now generationally, who have learned their hate from adults and learned how to then terrorize these black students in these colleges and universities. And at the same time, we have Amir Locke, who was through a no-knock warrant, gunned down in his own home, just like Breonna Taylor, and why? And I'm not ignoring what Black people do. We have a lot of knuckleheads in this community, and that's the problem. I'm not looking at people of African descent as angels or demons, but as human beings. With all that being said, there have been so many instances throughout the history of this country in which African-American rights constitutional rights and just the right to live a life have had instances of terrorism. And I, I don't even want to, let me just add this one thing, that the Supreme Court now allows Alabama's conservative redistricting to, to stand. So in voting rights, we see across the country, voting rights, once again, what we saw back in that early time period when 
Black History Month was created or Negro History Month and then became Black History Month when it was created, that was the undermining of voting rights as well. We had criminal injustice. We had the undermining of voting rights. We had segregated schools. We have terrorism taking place. All of this, and people left the United States who were African descent, and they went to other countries. Today, I want to talk about the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, which is the organization created by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who's considered the father of Black History Month. And I want from there to go forward to let people see the connections to this day we're still having. That the diaspora of African Americans who have been spread out around the world because of enslavement, when people were kidnapped from Africa and forced into labor on threat of death, many killed in the in the Middle Passage from um, the African continent across the Atlantic Ocean to North and South America. But that diaspora is still here. We're still looking for each other and connecting with each other. Today, I want to talk about how people left during this time period of early American history as African Americans and decided they would rather have their fate in another nation. We're going to talk with um, Julia Brown, who's going to talk about not just the history of those African Americans who were in Paris. We're also going to talk about programs that connect the diaspora of African-Americans. We're going to talk about the theme for African-American history, which is set each year by the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, Dr. Carter G. Woodson's um, organization that he started back in 1926. And this year's theme is Black Health and Wellness, Black Health and Wellness, that in spite and despite all of these things, here we are, we still stand looking at history looking at our present and planning for a better future. We'll be back after this with so many guests covering the types of programs and the connections of the African diaspora of African-Americans, but we're also gonna talk about the people behind the month, Black History Month. I'll be right back. Yes, and that was Alicia Keys, and we gotta pray. 
We're here with Julia Brown, and, and I'm very excited. I just want you to know that Julia Brown is someone I met via social media when I was in Paris, and I wanted to take a tour. I wanted to follow in the footsteps of Dr. Carter G. Woodson because Dr. Woodson not only started Negro History Week that became Black History Month, but he traveled internationally. And we're going to talk about the diaspora, and we're going to use Julia's experiences as someone who has taken many people like myself on tours in Paris to follow in those footsteps as well. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, Gloria. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. So we're going to get right to it. Tell us about the tours that you give to people like me. Okay. So our, our tours are walking tours, bus tours, but also itinerary plans that integrate a full black heritage experience. So what we do is that we experience, we, um, we help people to tap into black history and heritage while they're traveling, but also, you know, educationally and through films. And the tours, what we do is we, the, the tours that I mapped out with the help of my mentor, who's from the Sorbonne, we walk people through the footsteps of African-Americans, Africans, Caribbeans who lived in Paris. But for, and Paris is the key piece here. But we have tours outside of Paris and other sites where black history is, is very strong. And on Europe, that, that, that are a lot of places like Spain and Portugal um, but and Germany. But in our, if I speak just about Paris for a moment, because that's where Dr. Um, Woodson studied at the Sorbonne, um, when you walk through uh, black history through the, through the very popular districts like the Saint-Michel Saint district or the lower Montmartre district or the Champs-Élysées district. There's a lot of black history there, but you don't know by just walking through. There's a couple of signs now. When I first started in 94, there were no signs at all, but there are, are signs uh, now. But when you walk through that history, we want you to feel like you're walking in their footsteps. You know, you know that expression, if you could walk a mile in my shoes? Well, we walk past, we give you the people the opportunity to look at the buildings, look in and walk into the buildings and the cafes and institutions that formed the thinking and the experiences of African Americans and what they and what they did with that that experience that they had. Did they create works of art? Did they write books that influenced other people? Did they create uh, new new ways of living and, and new ways of thinking for people back home? And did they bring that back home? Um, create art schools. There's so much that comes out of that Paris experience. And so when people are walking through, uh, whether they're walking on a cobblestone street or a wide avenue, whether they're sitting in a cafe, there is an opportunity to connect to the spirit of the African-Americans who have walked through that, walked and lived and produced, brought out their creativity in that space that is Paris. And Julia Brown, um, one of the things that, that I enjoyed much more than I, I guess I, I should have was the idea that um, so many writers, as a black writer myself or a writer who's African-American, uh, there, there were so many black writers who decided they either had to visit Paris or decided to live in, and stay in Paris. And Michelle Fabre wrote the book, From Harlem to Paris, Black American Writers in France. And I enjoyed ultimately to be able to sit in France with that book in my hand and I was in mm -hmm. a Paris cafe. And I just felt wonderful because I felt I was part of something. But it was also, there. 
issues in the United States that drove people to Paris. They wanted to have a better sense of freedom. Tell us a little bit about the writers, the black writers who were in Paris. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you said that you were able to sit and read that book, Gloria, the black writers from 1864 to 1960, because Professor Fabre was my mentor. That's the one I mentioned before. At the Sorbonne. So we, at the Sorbonne, yes. We were connected in that way. But the black writers that came, you know, they were influenced by um, the, the, the soldiers that came in World War One first and the experience of, of the lack of racism that they felt there and their, that their talents were accepted. Um, and when the writers heard, the writers, the artists, and heard about how, how that, how you could live in France and be unmolested. Um, they, of course, all, all traveled, many of them traveled over, and they said there were more members of the Harlem Renaissance in Paris in the 1920s than there were in Harlem itself. So there was Claude McKay, who, who widened his experience and went to the south of France, went to Russia, um, and, and, and got experience working with um, people that were from the different parts of the diaspora there and wrote about that in a different way than um, Harlem, than um, Langston Hughes wrote about it when he lived in Paris. And Langston came in as a very, a very young man and really had to fight his way to, and he didn't start out writing um, about that glory of being in Paris. He, he actually was, he, he had very negative experience when he got there. Um, but it, it turned out that the fact that he realized that he, he was being refused for jobs because he had to find little jobs everywhere he could and end up working in the entertainment industry and in, in the industry, entertainment district, that he found that he wasn't getting jobs because he was black. He was getting jobs because simply he wasn't French. And that was a, a revolutionary thought. And, you know, that changes the way um, the way writers think about about it. But, you know, what was interesting, too, is that they, they had the opportunity Langston and um, uh, and Claude McKay and 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 the other writers came. When they had the opportunity to meet with writers from the diaspora, from the, so the African writers that were there as well. Um, later on, um, Amy Césaire and Leopold Senghor and um, the man who be, who earned the who got the first. Um, Goncourt Prize, which is like the Pulitzer, René Maron, they had the opportunity to come together with writers from, from the Caribbean and from Africa. And that, too, helped to, 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 to refine their way of thinking, to open up their way of thinking. And it wasn't just men. There were women there, too. A young poet named uh, Gwendolyn Bennett. She spent time in Paris writing as well. Um, Eslanda Robeson, Paul Robeson's wife, was there as well. Um, and Paul Robeson uh, was there often. And and he, also um, Mary Church Terrell, who was talking about activists yes. and others who, yes. who were there. Um, it was it's amazing. And, and um, tell us in our last moments, we've been together talking about this particular topic. But you're going to stay with us because Julia Brown is in Canada right now. And we're going to be talking a little later about the different Asala Black History programs. And one of them involves Canada, as well as the Philippines. And so that's also a part of the show. It's going to be a power pack show. Tell us more about how people can get in touch with you if they want to, once we can travel freely, if they want to take one of your tours. Um, you don't have to wait until you're ready to travel. You can actually um, go on our website, which is walkthespirit.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter. And I put out a newsletter every month. So you can start preparing mentally, or you could just take it as sustenance and inspiration 
um, to t- of black travel to France and 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 further. So, on our and website, give us that website one more time. Walkthespirit.com. And you'll see Walk the, the spirit.com. Walk the spirit.com. And, yeah. you know, I just, I'll tell you that it, Paris was in the middle of a transit strike when I was there last in 2019, December 2019. And I still had a chance to go on one of Julia's tours. So, what we're going to do right now is to move into a musical break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Julia's not going to leave us. She's going to stay with us. But we're going to be talking with um, someone who is not just uh, a connection to Dr. Carter G. Woodson, but also a connection to the HBCUs under threat by these bomb threats and terrorism. We'll be right back. Just beautiful, McCoy Tyner, my favorite things. And we're continuing our discussion about Black History Month, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, as well as um, we need to talk very seriously about what's happening with HBCUs. And we have all of that with our guests here, Dr. Mary Ann Alabanza Akers. And welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me in your show. So um, you're a professor at um, Morgan State University, which is a an historically black college university. And at the same time, um, you're a Filipino-American who is part of the Asala's Black History Month programs, uh, giving us a, a, a sight into the connection between the U.S., the Philippines, and Dr. Carter G. Woodson. So let's dive in. First, let's talk about being in an HBCU during this time period of these bomb threats that started on February 1st, Black History Month. I think there was a threat to Howard maybe the night before that, but most of them um, took place on February 1st. What was that like receiving these threats? Yes, so we received, because uh, of my uh, position as an administrator, uh, I'm the dean for the School of Architecture and Planning. We received a text um, at 5.30 in the morning saying that there was a bomb threat and so um, the campus will be closed. So with that said, um, 
obviously uh, my our faculty and students and we were we were scared whoa what's this about but our president is such a good leader that he immediately that morning early morning sent an email saying we let we're doing the best that we can to make sure that the campus is safe but stay away but we will not uh, uh, kowtow to this type of threat. And he really gave such an inspirational email. And that made us feel better, actually. So we're back to normal now. I'm here. And um, we're, we're, of course, we, we're vigilant. But at the same time, we will not be afraid. We will stand Excellent. We will stand. As I said, um, Dr. Mary Ann Alabanza Akers is Dean for the School of Architecture and Planning at Morgan State University in Baltimore. And these threats were taking place uh, against schools across the nation. This was not just a Southern thing. So many people think it's all about the Deep South, but it wasn't. From schools in Kentucky mm -hmm. to, to Baltimore and Washington, D.C. area, these schools have been under threat. And I'm, I'm so uh, honored that your president would keep the peace of mind to, to know that we're not going to kowtow to something that's been happening for over a hundred years this as I pointed out earlier in the show so what did you have to do what what uh, precautions are you now taking well um, we do have very tight security in our buildings and so um, that's that's one of those uh, I would say practical uh, solutions to this. Um, but we're carrying on. We're carrying on. And as I said, we, we are vigilant, but we are carrying on our classes face-to-face, -face, and some are remote, but um, a, a lot are uh, in person. We're, all, we're back to normal. Oh, great. The, the threats actually entailed um, the very elaborate schemes of, of saying that Bombs have been placed in duffel bags, and those duffel bags have been hidden around different campuses. And we find now that this could be actually um, six young people who perpetrated this terrorism against the schools around the country. But, you know, these young people learn their hate from adults. This is not yeah. something that young people just automatically think, well, let's just terrorize um, HBCUs, especially during a time period in which um, a, a black woman may be the next nominee to the high court. Uh, but let's go to something else, um, and that is your heritage as Filipino-American and the, the, the program that you are planning for Black History Month. Yes. So I'm very fortunate that I am part of the uh, International Committee because I have been, um, first of all, I'm an urban planner. I'm really not a historian. But in order for, I feel, in order for me to, to take this role as an administrator in an HBCU, I do need to really be also very, very familiar with, his, with black history. And so the intersection of Filipino history and black history is so powerful, and it's not talked about. And that's why I really feel moved to, to make people more aware. So when Dr. Woodson came to the Philippines, he was one of the few um, uh, educators uh, who, who uh, black educators who 
um, were with, we call them the Thomasites. These are the American mostly white uh, female educators who came to the Philippines um, to establish a, a uh, an educational system based on the American va- based on American values, um, and so there were only a few uh, African Americans who actually came to the Philippines. And Dr. Woodson, as far as I can, um, uh, what's this gleam out of the very scant uh, literature on his days in the Philippines? I only came across another person, another black educator who came a year before Woodson. So Woodson, uh, Dr. Woodson actually established many of our local schools, but he was also uh, being influenced by this overall, uh, I would say, uh, approach by the Americans that in order for Filipinos to be civilized, we need to make them uh, feel as well as think like Americans. And so, but fortunately, Dr. Woodson, after his experience there, he was there for three years, um, he eventually wrote the book, Miseducation of the Negro. And one of our scholars, many decades later, used that as a way to also pen a manuscript, The Miseducation of the Filipino. And both of them, Dr. Whitson and Dr. Constantino, uh, both agreed uh, that the best way, and I'll put that in quotes, the best way to control people is to control their mind. And that's what they did. So growing up in the Philippines, um, we were taught American uh, ways. I remember as a young child, um, we were taught the alphabet. And A stood for apple. S stood for snow. As a young girl in a tropical country, we did not have apples. So apples were foreign to us, but that's how I learned my alphabet. S is for snow. Uh, Philippines, tropical, snow, all we knew that it was white. Um, And so that's how they really, uh, uh, again, brainwashed us into thinking that anything that's American is much better than Filipino. So Dr. Woodson's book and Dr. Constantino is re- are, are really, um, the I would say, the impetus to changing the way that African Americans and Filipinos should look at the world. We've got to remove that lens, that imperialist colonial lens, and start really celebrating our own. Um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about with um, Dr. Joy Spencer, who is um, the interim dean in uh, University of San Diego, and she's going to talk more about how um, how she has developed a curriculum to address the points that uh, Dr. Woodson um, um, wrote in his book. So it's it's going to be a both um, 
from an African American perspective and from a Filipino perspective. That's excellent, excellent. Topic. Thank you. And as as our listeners um, can realize from this, there are going to be very um, exciting programs for Black History Month from an international perspective. And we're going to bring all of that together right after this musical break when we're going to be joined by Rosemary Sadlier, once again from Canada, who is an amazing person. She is she is um, a gem of uh, Canadian history around uh, Black History Month. She's, she is extraordinary as far as her contribution to um, Black History Month in Canada. We're going to learn more about what she has done when she arrives on the scene with us. And we have all three of these guests together talking about their um, Association for the African American Life and History programs, as well as their respective countries. We'll be right back after this musical break. about Stand By Me and Benny King's song. Um, when I think about our African diaspora, what brought us together um, to have this international committee for the Association of Study of African-American Life and History's Black History Month programs and events was this idea of the diaspora coming together to stand by each other. And we're being joined here. We have all three, Julia Brown, as well as Mary Ann Alabanza Akers, being joined by Rosemary Sadlier. And Rosemary, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, I've said wonderful things about you and I haven't said enough because she is a social justice advocate, a researcher, a writer of many books, a consultant, international speaker on Black History Month, on anti-racism issues in Canada, and you're also um, the engine behind securing Black History Month on a federal level there. Um, thank you. And, and I just want to ask you just a little little bit, because you could be, um, of course, uh, on this program for an hour and not talk about all you've done. But 
when we're talking about Black History Month in Canada, what made you say this has to be something that the, the whole country needs to know about? It's very simple. We, we don't have sufficient representation, and one of the ways in order to make that happen is through having a day, a time, a symbol that people can focus on, because certainly it wasn't really happening previous to that. Now, I should say that I was heading an organization that was essentially a SALA, but in Canada, and it had been founded in 1978 by an African-American who was familiar with the idea. He'd come into Toronto with his uh, wife, uh, who was white, and because they couldn't live legally in the United States, they came into Canada, and among the many things that they did was to create an organization which essentially, as I said, was like a sala in Canada. So I, um, it was an extension of the work that was already being done, but it was only focused on the local level. I brought it into the regional, the provincial, and the national level in this country. And uh, I think that uh, we're now in the 26th, 27th, 26th year of it being a national celebration, and I'm very proud of that. And uh, your, one of your titles is Order of Ontario. Tell us about that. The Order of Ontario, I'm also a Kentucky colonel, so people might be more familiar with that title, but um, it's perhaps even more so than being a Kentucky colonel, if I can say so, because uh, the province of Ontario is a larger regional mass. Um, it is the largest province in Ontario in Canada and likely has, for the longest time, probably had the largest African-Canadian population. So I was... Um, appointed to this order, and the next highest order after this would be the Order of Canada. And you and Julia are working together on a, an international event um, representing Canada on the International Members Committee of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. Tell us about your program. Right. Well, our program... Um, in it, okay, so I, I already had been for uh, over 25 years organizing tours and programs and events and commemorations and making nominations and so on. And every year the program has a bit of a different focus. So this year, because I'm working as an independent with Julia, um, we are following again the Asala theme and um, our title, our program title is Healing the Harms, Blackness and Impacts on Beauty, Identity and Achievement. So um, it will be February the 12th, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm very proud to say that um, it will be screening a trailer, Subjects of Desire, which is about beauty and um, self-esteem um, by Canadian producer Jennifer Holness. And there will also be a short film on George Floyd, Say Their Names, by an African-American producer who's right there in New York City, Chris Owens. Wonderful. So there's this sense in, in America for African-Americans that Canada is this great place, this heaven for, for people of color. Um, I, I've spent some time in Canada and I don't think it's heaven. Uh, what are some of the issues that you see there when, when it comes to race relations? 
Well, you know, we we are born of the same seed. We are born of the same experience of the transatlantic slave trade. We are born of the same institutions and policies and ways of knowing and doing that the United States was. What the difference is, is the point in time when we ended our slavery in this country. So it's a 30-year difference. We had slavery over here, ended here 30 years before you did. And during that period of time, because of that particular focus, it gave Canada the image of being a place because when it was formalized as a country, it was no longer a slave-holding country. But that image continues to this day, but the problems that came about through the inequitable treatment of people of African origin, uh, tracing back to those days, those problems continue. We had segregation here. We had um, the inability or the prevention of people in going into uh, formal training, professional training. We had separate services. We had, and we still have uh, major issues with the justice system. So it's only recently, for example, that uh, our federal government has worked on creating disaggregated data so that we will have a bit more of a specific sense of exactly who is being harmed the most. But we certainly know from our lived experience and from what people out in the field working in various agencies, schools, the justice system, and um, businesses, we know that there are issues that need to be addressed. Um, Equality, freedom that we were given (laughs) or that we worked so hard to achieve did not mean equity. And we continue to strive to bring awareness to those issues. And... Oh, I, and thank you so much because uh, I, I, I guess because we're they're the kinder cousins north, um, this sense that um, the Canadian experience is the promised land for African Americans. So many um, arrived there, and the, and the history, the connection, as you know uh, probably better than I do, of the Black Loyalists who were the uh, people of African descent who fought on the side of the British and during the Revolutionary War and then were promised land in Nova Scotia and the land they were given was horrendous. And I think, Julia, you've, you've spoken before and uh, um, not now on my show, but in many times about the, the conditions of those people in Nova Scotia after they were given that land uh, following the Revolutionary War. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is Julia I don't available? Know what happened to Julia, but let me just add to what yes, you said sure. there. Yes, um, sure. They, they didn't just go to Nova Scotia. They went to New Brunswick. They went to Prince Edward Island. They went to Ontario. And I am the proud descendant of the first waves of migration from the United States into Canada of African Americans. So I'm, I am a descendant of black loyalists, late loyalists, and the refugees of the War of 1812 as well as the Underground Railroad. When you talk about what was land like, what was, what was the situation like in Nova Scotia, it was horrendous because uh, white loyalists were given their land first, were given better land, were given land that you could actually farm because farming was the key to self-sufficiency at the time. And black loyalists had to wait 
Uh, that's why some of them ended up essentially squatting because it can be cold in January trying to find a place to live. And um, they were given land that was either incredibly far away from maybe being able to earn day money, you know, doing work in the city, or land that was so rocky, that's all it could grow, as somebody said, is rocks. It was awful. And in fact, it was so bad that people opted to leave. Um, their, their feeling that freedom was just not free. And uh, many of them uh, ended up going from, uh, in this instance, Nova Scotia, all the way back to um, Liberia, not Liberia, uh, Sierra Leone, because they felt that if they could not live in full freedom and take care of themselves, they would leave. Um, But that was after the largest race riot that had ever been held in North America at the time in Shelburne, Nova Scotia. Tell us more about that. Um, Essentially, um, black people had come in as loyalists and kind of... What year? About what year are we? Mm, About 1783. So we're talking about the time of the beginnings of the American Revolutionary War or the American War of Independence. So people, um, uh, the the, um, Ameri- the American, the <laughs> revolutionary forces were fighting against the British, and at the time, Britain controlled the area we now call Canada. So people withdrew from um, people like white loyalists were running because the war was, ex- you know, expanding north and making it very precarious. Um, many people kept moving north, and they were in New York, where you are. Uh, And from New York, many disembarked and made their way to the Maritimes by sea. Um, But in the process, um, the the idea was that by inviting black enslaved Africans to join the British forces, it would weaken the revolutionary side. So black people... (laughs) Free? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And they fought on the side of the British uh, because they wanted to be free, and that is what they were promised, and that is what they got. But the problem was that the free that they got meant that they were no longer enslaved. But the conditions that they found themselves in were not sufficient to sustain life. And I, I had a chance to travel during a time period when I was working on my book, um, Race Law in American Society, to um, Nova Scotia. And they had a recreation of the hole they, they slept in that the um, people of African descent had to build the homes for the whites first. And, of course, winter comes quick <laughs> in Canada. And before they could build their own homes, their, winter was upon them. And so these dugouts were made. I, I, it was just appalling to think, as cold as it is up there, that that um, African people survived that. Um, I well, want to turn. Come on, Gloria. You know, you know, it isn't all that cold in 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 Canada. Uh, this is you don't cross the border and hit the, the North Pole. Um, well, we do, I, it's we cold have, enough. We do have some severe winters, but um, trust me, the weather in Toronto, where I am, is often better than the weather weather in Buffalo or Albany. Okay, and and for that's that's great for people in Buffalo and Albany. But here's 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 the the, the point I want to go back to, and I and I hope Julia's back with us. 
um, now. Um, we've had our representation for today's show, and we're going to continue to do these programs, um, uniting the diaspora in the best way we can after intentionally having um, the, the governments of different countries uh, splitting up Africans into all of these different regions and yet coming back together no matter what and having that bond that is that is there that's so important. Um, what is it, and we can we can start with, with um, Rosemary if you like and then go to um, Marianne and Julia. What is it like when you're studying the African diaspora, understanding, as you've just pointed out, so many of the obstacles that have been in the way of maintaining that connection and realizing we're still connected? What is it that people should get from this, this sense of the diaspora of, and, and this, how it connects in Black History Month? What do you want people to know about the importance of this coming together under this umbrella of, of Black history? Um, uh, you know, I think, I think Black oh. history is about everything about us. And, and when I, I say, when I see somebody who's of African origin, I, I want to feel and I hope that they have some of the same ideas about what they feel is important for other people who look like us. Um, I think that, um, you know, right now we, we are dealing with um, some unfortunate incidents up here with the um, truckers blockade trying to replicate some crazy things that have happened uh, in the not too distant past. And it's a reminder that, you know, they're doing it during Black History Month. I don't know if that's intentional or unintentional. But when we see these images of Confederate flags in Canada, I mean, really, um, it's a reminder that we really haven't arrived as a black diaspora at a point where we can all comfortably um, speak our truth and in that sense speak our history, speak to our experiences, and speak to the kinds of changes that we want to see to make sure that um, we have full representation and equity and diversity in everything that we are impacted by. Oh, very well said. Um, um, Julia and Marianne, what is it about Black History Month that you want people of the diaspora to understand, as well as other people? What What's the importance of this coming together? Um, so from the Philippines' perspective, uh, all our ancestors are African. And I will, in my talk, talk more about that connection. We think that as Filipinos, we have no connection to Africa. People don't, my own country people don't know about our connections to Africa and our connections to African-American history. So it's important that we shed light on this. Our ancestors traveled from Africa when the world was still, or our part of the world was still one big land mass. We're all separated now. But I think going back to our roots is very, very important for us to celebrate our Filipinoness. And uh, hopefully people will attend. It's on February 15th at 1 o'clock. Um, and, and again, that, that connection between uh, Philippine history and African-American history is very important. Thank you. And that's the miseducation of the Filipino 
Negro parallel frames of unwellness. And that is, as pointed out, Tuesday, February 15th. If you go to the um, a calendar, Asala, and that is A-S as in Sam, A-L-H dot org, look for the calendar. And on the calendar, you will see these Black History events. And so, Julia, as we come to our last moments, what is it that you see that is necessary for the diaspora to connect around when it comes to Black History Month and, and for others to better understand why Black history is still important? Is Julia with us? Well, let's let's move on then. Um, and, and I want to go over these programs again. We have the title, Healing the Harms, Blackness, and Impacts on Beauty, Identity, and Achievement. That is this Saturday, February 12th, and that is from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. And so this is the program from Canada, both Rosemary and Julia will be um, the host for that program, Healing the Harms, Blackness, and Impacts on Beauty, Identity, and Achievement. And I think it's very important for us to understand our identity, our sense of beauty, whether or not we see ourselves as attractive, is set by a standard that's rarely that of a person of color. Um, and that is Saturday, February 12th, our first international event that Asala is, is having people, as part of Black History Month. Gloria, if I can just interrupt. People yes. do need to register in advance. I would suggest they register today just to make sure there's you know, no problem with the system. It's a platform called See Alive. It's something like a Vimeo. People might be familiar with that. But this is CYA.live. And um, the event is called the 26th Anniversary of Black History Month. But you will, as Gloria pointed out, find the full link on Asala's website. But please, you have to register in advance or you won't be able to get into it. Yes, and that is because of Zoom bombing. There's been terrorism on social media in the form of Zoom bombing and people trying to terrorize us out of having these programs. But as um, Marianne has said, and doc Dr. Akers, I should say, um, we're going to stand strong. And so in, having said that, the miseducation of the Negro slash Filipino, parallel frames of unwellness, that will be Tuesday, February 15th at 1 p.m. And once again, all of these programs and many more can be found on the Asala website, A-S as in Sam, A-L-H dot org. And please, uh, and I think we have Julia back with us. Julia, um, we have two minutes. What would you think that, you, that the, the listeners should know about why black history is still important, why the diaspora should come together under this, 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 this sense of Black History Month, and what other people can gain by studying Black history. Thanks for bringing me back in. Can you hear me okay now? Yes, I can. Okay, I, I just wanted to say, as somebody who encourages people to travel, travel not for the sake of traveling, but travel for connecting with our heritage as it is spread all over the world, I find that people want to know as they travel, for example, to Paris or to Spain or to Canada, to United States, to, to wherever they travel to, that they want to connect with their heritage there. And the fact of learning 
walking in the footsteps and, and feeling our heritage in these places is a very motivating force. But then when you learn, when you travel, what has been, been, has been taken out of our knowledge and that what we are intentionally gathering as our knowledge and building up the force inside of us, that is very, very motivating, and that brings us back together as a family. It's not. It doesn't mean that as Americans or or Canadians or uh, a Europeans, Afro French or or whoever, that we all are on the same page initially. But it means that we have a starting point, and that's our African origins. And we're talking here, and our time is up. With three brilliant people, um, Julia Brown and her website, once again, walkthespirit.com. Please check it out. It's, it's amazing. As I told you, full disclosure, I am a member of the Asala Executive Council, Asala, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. Rosemary Sadler, who is the engine behind um, Black History Month in Canada and all of her amazing contributions in Canada and, and, the, and the diaspora as well. And um, Dr. Mary Ann Alabanza Akers and all three of these beautiful and brilliant women will be hosting programs for Black History Month. I thank you for, for being a part of our show this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And this is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall.